five impacts of the latest Trump indictment, why the Fulton County judge assigned to the case couldn't be worse for Trump, and what Trump really said during that phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. This is a Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. Trump was indicted again for the fourth time. You know that. I know that. We all know that. Every possible juror in all of these cases knows that. So I'm not going to go through the 91 confusing pages of this indictment. No need to do all that. We know it's BS. So we're not going to dig through all of that nonsense. But what, what I will do is give you a basic overview and tell you what stood out to me. And then I'm going to tell you the five real-world impacts that this indictment is already having on this thing we call reality in 2023. And after that, I'm going to talk about why the judge assigned in the case, which I can't even talk about this without laughing because it's so ridiculous, why this could not be a worse judge for Trump. And finally, I'm going to end the show by playing far more of that phone call that prompted this entire investigation than the media has ever played for you or for anyone else. The call I'm talking about is, of course, the the call that Trump calls perfect and that the media calls criminal that he had with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd of 2021. The find the votes call, that call was an hour and 10 minutes long. The media plays one eight second clip that they cherry picked from it, a clip that cuts off abruptly in the middle of the sentence. They just play that over and over again and say, proof, Trump's guilty. When in reality, in full context, that phone call shows the exact opposite than what they tell us it does. That's what's crazy about this indictment, if you really think about it. The entire investigation that led to it was prompted not by a full phone call or a half of a phone call or even a quarter or 10% of a phone call or even 1% of a phone call. It was triggered by eight out-of-context seconds of a 70-minute phone call that could only be portrayed as criminal activity if you intentionally ignore the most obvious explanations for what you are hearing. Seems absurd, and yet here we are. I'm going to play you not just eight seconds of that phone call. I'm going to play you eight minutes of that phone call that I edited together down from 70 minutes of them talking about the same stuff Still not the full context, but more than enough to leave little doubt as to what Trump was really asking Brad Raffensperger to do and what he was not asking Brad Raffensperger to do. These are eight minutes the media does not want you to hear. Otherwise, they would just play it or tell people where they could go listen to it because it's available online. There are probably CNN and MSNBC viewers who don't even realize that, who think that those eight seconds that they've heard are the only eight seconds from that call that have been made publicly available. There's a 100% chance that there are some doofuses that think that. They probably think the rest of the call is classified or something. And, you know, Trump stole the document. So that's going to be the end of the show. But for now, the beginning of the show, the indictment. Trump and a bunch of his lawyers and advisors, 18 of them, to be precise, were indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, on RICO charges, racketeering. They're being charged with... Being a criminal gang, an organization like the mafia, the mob, or the Biden family, and they're being accused of conspiring together to illegally overturn an election that they all knew in their minds was not fraudulent, was perfect, really, despite what they claimed publicly. This indictment uses a different strategy than the federal Jack Smith indictment, but it's all based on the same premise and the same assumptions that Trump and his co-conspirators knew that there was no fraud, yet they claimed there was anyway in an attempt to illegally steal an election. 
What stands out to me about it, the first thing that does, is the number of co-conspirators that are named in the indictment, which are 18, as well as the number of unnamed co-conspirators who were, who were not charged, which is 30. That's 48 people who were either telling Trump that they believe there, there might have been some election fraud or who were supporting his belief that there was. Compare that to the number of people who Jack Smith listed in the federal indictment, who he said told Trump that there was no election fraud. And because they told him, because they were best positioned to know, Trump knew with absolute certainty that there was no election fraud. It's such an absurd argument. Smith cited maybe eight or nine government officials who told Trump that. 48 telling Trump there might be fraud, eight telling him that there's not. And yet to believe the 48 over the eight is now a crime. And to even question the eight at all is likely an overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy, according to this indictment that's just full of overt acts. Doesn't matter what it is. Tie in your shoe. Overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy. That's the way this document reads. Here's how the indictment sums up the claims in the intro. Defendant Donald John Trump lost the United States presidential election held on November 3, 2020. One of the states he lost was Georgia. Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost. And they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. That conspiracy contained, co contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other states. They knowingly and willfully, hey, you want to join our conspiracy? I knowingly and willingly accept your offer. And doesn't it sound when she says that Trump and the other defendants refused to accept that Trump lost? Doesn't that make it sound like she, she's saying, yeah, Trump believed that he won? Kind of sounds like she's undermining the entire argument of the document. Also, just like the federal indictment, this one is built on the foundational assumption that there is no election fraud. The entire indictment depends on that being absolutely certain. If you cannot say that with absolute certainty, if all of the challenges to this premise have not been disposed of convincingly, if the case is not firmly closed and convincingly closed, then the entire case falls apart. You can't say that someone knew for certain that there was election fraud and then went on to lie and claim that there wasn't anyway if you yourself can't prove with 1,000% certainty that there was not. Which begs the question, how can this foundational assumption of no election fraud that the entire case depends upon hold up when there are still currently three election-related challenges open in Georgia right now? If they're not certain, if those haven't been kicked to the side definitively, you have nothing. But there I go again, trying to apply logic to the thinking of people who are conducting a psychological operation. That's my mistake. Here's what she did, a little trick she did throughout this whole indictment, which is easy to do when you bring a RICO charge, a conspiracy charge. She turns a bunch of perfectly legal actions that people took, people who are charged, into evidence of criminal activity against all of them by declaring these actions to be what's called in criminal law overt acts. 
Overt acts are defined as action, which might be innocent in and of itself, but if part of the preparation and active furtherance of a crime, can be introduced as evidence of a defendant's participation in a crime. An example of this might be buying a map in New York, which is a perfectly legal thing to do, as is renting a van. However, if the person who buys a map and rents a van is also being charged of conspiring to blow up a building in New York, then those acts which are otherwise legal activities, could then be alleged to be overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy and therefore evidence of a crime. And that's what this indictment is, top to bottom, overt act after overt act. It's kind of like that time when Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, if you could find Hillary's emails, which, which was an in-the-moment reaction, how the media has been portraying that as an overt act asking Russia to find Hillary's emails for him. He was anybody who's not brain dead knows he was joking, but they turn it into an overt act that is evidence. That's the same thing she does in this entire indictment. Turns things that are legal, whatever it is, into overt acts and evidence. Sending an email requesting the exchange of contact information, sending a text message requesting someone's phone number, simply placing a telephone call, leaving a voice message, participating in a group phone call, telling people to watch the news in a tweet. All overt acts according to this indictment. All evidence of a criminal conspiracy. Here's an example of one right here. This is overt act number 22 on page 24 of the indictment. It says, on or about the third day of December 2020, Donald John Trump caused to be tweeted from the Twitter account at Real Donald Trump, quote, Georgia hearings on now at OANN, One American News, amazing, end quote. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. That's what the document says. That last part, it says it also. Promoting watching One American News is evidence that you're participating in a vast criminal conspiracy. It's filled with nothing but overt acts similar to that. There's like, I think, 14 tweets that are referenced as overt acts <laughs> presented as evidence of a criminal conspiracy. I'm not going to go through any more of that. We don't have to go through 91 pages of this indictment to know that it's bullshit. Everyone knows that it's bullshit. The media does. Joe Biden does. Bonnie Willis does. That's why she made it so convoluted in the first place, to confuse people so that they don't think too hard about it or spend too much time analyzing it and possibly accidentally realize that it's total BS. They want to prevent that from happening. They prefer people accepting the media's interpretation of these things than people coming to their own conclusions about them after doing their own analysis. That's why you get a 91-page confusing, convoluted BS indictment. It hurts people's brains to even try to read. Okay, now I want to move on to five impacts in the real world, real world, fiction world, because what is the world right now? The impacts that I see happening from this indictment that are already happening. Number one, the media can breathe a huge sigh of relief because with this indictment news, they don't have to talk very much about the Hawaii fires, which they don't want to talk about. They would much prefer spending the next 72 hours talking about the most damning Trump tweets than they would discussing possible causes of those fires, which currently, outside of climate change, we're not given an explanation for. It's still a mystery, and it's one that the media has no interest in solving. I mean, they gave more attention to a 2018 story about Hawaii's emergency alert system falsely warning people about an emergency that wasn't real 
than they've given to this 2023 story about Hawaii's emergency alert system failing to warn people about one that was real. Number two, the second impact of this indictment is Trump's going to raise a shitload of money. That's what happens. These indictments are campaign drives for Trump. A lot of it goes to paying his legal fees, definitely, but his legal defense is his campaign at this point. That is what it will become. They have already merged together, and they will be one and the same before this is all over with, because if they're going to be tying up his time with all of these court appearances and trial dates, which is they say that they're, they're trying to do and drain his resources, then that is naturally what will occur. If we have to spend our time in court all the time, if we have to spend all our money, we are going to merge the legal defense completely with the campaign rallying. And it'll work too. I guarantee it will work. Number three, the third impact of the latest indictment, Trump support's going to grow. And I don't mean people who already support him digging in. I mean, he is going to get new people who would not have previously voted for him to vote for him because of this stuff. CNN has a different theory. I've seen a number of their commentators parrot the argument that Trump can't win the general election because after being indicted four times, there aren't people who voted for him in 2016, who switched to Biden in 2020, who are seeing all these indictments and then switching back to Trump in 2024. That person doesn't exist, according to CNN, and therefore he can't beat Joe. That's a really dumb argument because that person does exist. You can see many of them on Twitter. Maybe some of them are bots. They're not all bots. The person exists. Even if that person did not exist, though, he doesn't have to get those votes back because he's going to be getting new votes from a different crowd. He's going to be getting votes more and more from people who don't like him, don't trust him, have never supported him, and in any other situation never would have supported him, possibly even actively opposed him in the past. I'm talking independents and I'm talking libertarians, not all of them, some of them. But they will support Trump because they are sick and tired of what's going on. They're just pissed off, and it's a effort vote. That's happening more and more. And maybe this is all part of a psyop to create that very situation where people don't vote for the third party that they typically would have, and because of how angry they are, they, they choose the Republican. I mean, they, they want it either or. They want it binary. If it is a psyop, it's certainly effective. I mean, everything's a psyop. Number four. This indictment will further confuse things and ensure that a growing number of people will never look at any one of the indictments long enough to discover that they are completely bogus. Which, if there was not a bunch of distractions, some people might actually do. That is what you run the risk of when you have a bogus indictment. If you don't have enough other things to distract people with and the indictment is not confusing enough, people might actually sit down in their free time start looking at it, and see right through it. And they can't have that. They want people accepting the interpretation that their media programs into their minds. That's why they need four indictments. Because it's an effort to try and prevent people from coming to their own conclusions. they got to keep people distracted, looking around, their heads hurting, saying, I don't even want to deal with this. I'll just accept what you tell me. People have no incentive to use all that brain power and try to figure something out when the answer they're being told by the media satisfies their confirmation bias. The fact that there are four of these things is the biggest telltale sign that all of them are bogus. I mean, the media has portrayed each of these indictments as just wonderful, creative, perfect, being full of evidence of criminality, as presenting an open and shut case against Trump. We got them. 
if that were the case, if the way that they portrayed these things were true, then they wouldn't need four indictments. They'd need one. You don't need four indictments if you got them with one. You need four when you got nothing and you're running a psyop. That's not to say that he won't be convicted. I mean, this isn't about the law anymore. It's about brainwashing. He, he will be convicted on some of these. It'll be overturned. Okay, let's talk about this judge assigned to the case for a minute. He is a 34-year-old white dude named Scott McAfee. There are 19 Fulton County Superior Court judges. He, the one who happened to be assigned to Trump's trial, is the newest one of them. He didn't become a judge until February of this year, 2023, after being appointed to the position when another judge retired. So the guy overseeing what some are calling the trial of the century has only been a judge for six months. But that's not all. It gets better. He's not only a newbie judge, he also previously worked for Fonnie Willis. District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Before she was the DA, she was the head of a special crimes division in the DA's office that McAfee also worked in. Willis was her supervisor. This despite the fact that Reuters and the Washington Post and other news outlets claimed in their articles covering the story that it is unknown if they worked together. No, it's not unknown if they worked together. It's definitely known that they did because the former district attorney, who was both of their bosses, Paul Howard, confirmed that the two worked in his district attorney office and that Willis was, in fact, McAvee's supervisor, something both the New York Times and Wall Street Journal did actually admit. But that's not all. There's still even more. The guy's not only an inexperienced judge whose former boss is the lady prosecuting Trump's case. The person who appointed him to this position when the other judge stepped down was the only anti-Trump Republican that the media loves more than Chris Christie, a guy who CNN can't stop calling the model Republican, and that would be Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. You can get a pretty good idea of why the media loves Kemp based on the coverage of his response to Trump's response to the indictment. Headlines like, Kemp tears into Trump's false Georgia claims. Or this one, Governor Brian Kemp absolutely obliterates Trump's plan to present irrefutable report on voter fraud and scorching statement. That's, that's how they cover Brian Kemp. And what Kemp's scorching statement, first, Trump's statement was, after the indictment, Trump posted a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia, is almost complete and will be presented by me at a major news conference at 11 a.m. on Monday in New Jersey. Based on the results of the conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exoneration. They never went after those that rigged the election. They only went after those that fought to find the riggers. To which Brian Kemp took a screenshot of. He took a screenshot of Trump's truth and tweeted it on X, along with a message that says, The 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. For nearly three years now, anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in a court of law. Our elections in Georgia are secure, accessible, and fair, and will continue to be as long as I am governor. The future of our country is at stake in 2024, and that must be our focus. That gives you a pretty good idea of where Brian Kemp stands. They love him. He's compromised. That's clear. Why is that important? Well, the judge in the uh, federal case, the Jack Smith case, is that lady is obviously biased, undeniably biased. She resided over most of the January 6th convictions or the largest number of them and was very 
seemingly not fair to a lot of them. And she supported the Black Lives Matter. Right? There's, there's no secret that she is anti-Trump. Even never-Trumper Republicans can't argue that she's fair. This judge, however, that's a different story. He's a white guy who went to UGA, was in the Federalist Society, and was appointed to his position by a Republican governor. He also has no history as a judge to tell which way he's going to rule one way or another that can be used against him, like, like the other judge did. So he's brand new, clean slate. So this is a guy who both the left and never Trump or Republicans can portray as fair, if not even favorable to Trump in their propaganda talking points. And, and they love that. I mean, they're already doing that with the federal indictment. You see it. I see this everywhere. The copy and paste talking point. Every person cited as evidence in the indictment is a Republican. It's, you know, case closed. It's the same thing here, except this dude being a Republican who's favorable to Trump. It couldn't be further from the truth. The, the, the federal prosecutor lady who, who hates Trump and loves Black Lives Matter riots would be a better judge than this one. And here's why. There's the obvious Fannie Wills conflict of interest, the less obvious but still present Brian Kemp conflict of interest. And, and then there's one more glaring fact that seals the deal on why this is the worst possible judge that Trump could have. Unlike all of the other Fulton County Superior Court judges, this guy was not elected to his position. All the other ones were. As I said, he was appointed to it when the other judge stepped down, and his seat is up for re-election in 2024. And to keep it, he has to be elected. He has to win. He has to win office in Fulton County, Georgia, an enormously blue county that heavily favored Biden in 2020, that loves them some Stacey Abrams. There are still Stacey Abrams signs everywhere. There's a freaking Stacey Abrams mural on the side of a tall building in Castleberry in Fulton County. Fulton County could not be more left-leaning if it fell over onto its ear. And a guy who is a Republican-appointed white male judge who was in the Federalist Society has to win the vote of the people in Stacey Abrams' country over to him instead of probably a minority opponent or, or maybe even a female minority opponent in order to keep his seat on the bench. In normal circumstances, he'd have no chance. They would not vote for him. But as you know, these aren't normal circumstances. These are 2023 circumstances. And in 2023 circumstances, this white boy judge does, in fact, have himself a shot at winning those Fulton County voters over and holding on to that Fulton County judge seat. And that one shot that he has comes in how he performs during Donald Trump's trial of the century. He's going to be auditioning to hold on to that judge seat, auditioning for the Fulton County voters with the way he performs in this trial. Here's what I will do for you. I will align with you. And because he's going to be portrayed as right-leaning and, and that's how they'll see him as a Republican, anything that he does that gives the appearance of not just going easy on Trump, but that gives the appearance of not going as hard as he possibly can at Trump. And it's over. He's got no chance. He's going to have to make Trump's life a living hell during this trial. He'll have to be three times as biased as any left-leaning judge would have to be just to make sure they don't think that he's going easy on Trump if he wants to hold on to that seat. He will be very cautious not to do anything that looks like he's doing Trump a favor, and he will make sure everyone knows in Fulton County that he is cracking down on Trump. To sum it all up, the judge overseeing Trump's trial, the trial of the century, is an unelected judge who's been on the job just six months, who previously worked for the very district attorney who is prosecuting the case he's overseeing, who also was appointed to his position by an anti-Trump Republican, and who, if he has any hope of holding on to that position, has to, with his performance during this trial— win over voters in a rabidly anti-Trump county who in any other circumstance would never consider voting for him. This guy couldn't be worse. And by the way, we have a pretty good idea what he's going to be cracking down on Trump for because he has already fined during a trial a formerly pro-Trump lawyer, Lynn Wood. You remember that guy? PSYOP. 
for making derogatory comments about an adversary in, uh, I think it was a civil case. As Axios put it, McAfee's ruling against pro-Trump attorney Lynn Wood in June offers insight into how he might approach public statements by Trump ahead of the trial. McAfee fined Lynn Wood $5,000 in contempt of court for making public disparaging comments about former associates in violation of a non-disparagement clause, which is exactly what Trump does. I mean, Trump says disparaging things about people he used to work with who are now adversaries. This guy is going to find Trump when Trump talks trash about Fonnie Willis or Mike Pence or whoever else, whether it is in a speech or whether it is on Truth Social. I guarantee it. I know my light looks a little bit weird now. I turn the lights out. It looks kind of trippy. Before we get to those eight minutes of phone conversation between Raffensperger and Trump that the media doesn't want you to hear, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the drive time, News Blast, XR, which is how I was once booked at the very Fulton County Jail that former President Trump is set to be booked at next week. I can tell the president exactly what to expect, and if they are going to treat him exactly as they treat everyone else, well, they're not going to be very nice to him. That is for sure. I'll tell you all about it and how I think Trump can actually win the 2024 presidential election while he is in the Fulton County Jail. I'm serious. I don't think they'll do it, but I'm serious about this idea. If you want to get access to that, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report. Subscribe there today. What you will get along with the subscriber-only content is you will get this show, the DMB, ad-free. Take out all of the ads for subscribers. Put it together with the uh, subscriber-only content. And it goes into your own private Patreon RSS feed that you can pop into anywhere you listen to your podcast. And it'll upload as soon as I upload it to Patreon. Patreon.com slash Propaganda Report. It's how I support the show. It's how I support myself. I saw some of the reviews you guys left last week, and and I appreciate that so much. I'm going to gather them and read them. I meant to do that today. But I am going to do that. So thank you so much. That I, I can't even tell you how much that helps me. If you want to help the show that way, leave a five-star review, a message that warms my heart. Like It really keeps me motivated. It helps me keep going. And also another way that you can help uh, if you're not a subscriber is let the ads play through. We don't get anything from the ads if they are skipped. And it helps us out uh, a super ton if you allow them to play through. So thank you for that. Patreon.com slash Propaganda Report. YouTube.com slash Brad Binkley. Rumble.com slash Prop Report. At Freedom Act Radio on Twitter or X. Okay. As promised, I'm going to play for you that montage of Trump talking about the numbers and evidence during that 62-minute phone call with not just Brad Raffensperger, but four other people. 62 minutes condensed down to eight minutes. The first part is Trump making his case, presenting his evidence as to why he thinks that he won in Georgia, which is just a small portion of him. doing. He does this throughout the whole thing, but it's clear that he's not asking Raffensperger or pressuring Raffensperger into trying to into getting him to do something illegal. That, that's that's not being done, and that there's no evidence of any criminal activity on Trump's behalf in this call either. Which again, this is the basis of the Georgia special grand jury. The whole call is him and his team presenting what they say they believe is evidence that proves that Trump actually received more votes, well in excess of the margin that he lost by, and presenting why they believe that, evidence they think they have, and asking Raffensperger and Raffensperger's lawyer if they would be willing to sit down with them and go through this stuff, and also asking them if they would show them 
evidence and uh, information that the Georgia Secretary of State's office in Raffensperger had refused to give them. Data they had refused to show them up until, uh, I mean, not even up until this point. They continue to say no to that during the phone call. Trump does repeat himself a lot because he's making his case over and over again because they just dismiss him. And you'll see why the media only ever plays that one short little like five second clip when they're trying to claim that there, there was a law broken here. It's, it's ridiculous. OK, thank you very much. Hello, Brad and Ryan and everybody. We appreciate the time and the call. Um, so we've spent a lot of time on this. And uh, if we could just go over some of the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially, uh, Georgia. Uh, you even see it by rally size, frankly. We'd be getting 25,000, 30,000 people a rally, and uh, the competition would get less than 100 people. And it never made sense. But we have a, a number of things. We have at least two or three, anywhere from 250 to 300,000 ballots were dropped mysteriously into the rolls. Much of that had to do with uh, Fulton County. Uh, which hasn't been checked. We think that if you check the signatures, a real check of the signatures going back in Fulton County, you'll find at least a couple of hundred thousand of uh, forged signatures of uh, people with the, that who's, who have been forged. Uh, and uh, we are quite sure that's going to happen. Another, uh, another tremendous number, we're going to have an ac accurate number over the next two days with certified accountants, uh, but an accurate number uh, will be given, but it's it's uh, in the 50s of thousands. Uh, and that's people that went to vote and they were told they can't vote because they've already been voted for. Uh, and uh, it's a very sad thing. They walked out uh, complaining, but they, the, the number is large. We'll have it for you, but it's very it's much more than the uh, number of 11,779. That's the, the current margin is only Eleven thousand seven seventy nine. Uh, Brad, I think I think you agree with that, right? That's that's something I think everyone, at least that's a number that everyone agrees on. But uh, that's the difference uh, in the votes. So there are many infractions, and the bottom line is many many times the eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy nine margin that they said we lost by. Ballots were dropped at, in massive numbers. And we're trying to get to those numbers, and we will have them. They'll take a period of time, certified. Uh, but but uh, but they're massive numbers, and far greater than the 11,779. But uh, but Brad, uh, if you took the minimum numbers, were were many many times above the 11,779, and many of those numbers are certified or they will be certified, but they are certified. Those are numbers that are there that exist and that uh, that beat the margin, uh, the margin of loss. It beat, They beat it, I mean, by a lot. So that's it. I mean, we have uh, many, many times the number of, uh, of votes necessary to win the state. And we won the state. Now, we won it very substantially. And easily and we're we're getting we have much of this is a very you know they're certified uh far more certified than we need 
Yeah, we'd like to go further, but we don't really need to. We have all the votes we need. You know, we won the state. If you took, these are the most minimal numbers, the numbers that I gave you. Those are numbers that are certified, your absentee ballots sent to vacant addresses, your your out-of-state voters, 4,925. You know, when you add them up, it's many more times, it's many times the 11,779 number. So we only lost the state by, 11, by, by that number, 11,000 votes and uh, 779. So with that being said, uh, with just what we have and you know, with just what we have, we're giving you minimal minimal numbers. We're doing the most conservative numbers possible. We're many times, many, many times above the the margin. And so we don't really have to mark. I don't think we have to go through right. machines. Because, right. because what's the difference between winning the election by two, two votes and winning it by a half a million votes? I think right. we probably did win it by a half a million. Regardless of those votes, with all of it being said, we lost by uh, 11, essentially 11,000 votes, and we have many more votes already calculated and certified to. And even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes than we need. They should care it because you want to get to an honest election. I won this election by hundreds of thousands of votes. There's no way I lost Georgia. There's no way. We won by hundreds of thousands of votes. I'm just going by small numbers. When you add them up, they're many times the 11,000. In in, uh, Fulton, where they dumped ballots, you will find that you have many that aren't even signed, and you have many that are forgeries. Okay? You know that. You know that. You have no doubt about that. And... You will find you will be at eleven thousand seven seventy nine within minutes. Look, all I want to do is this: I just want to find uh, eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. We need only eleven thousand votes. We have far more than that as it stands now. We'll have more and more. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Uh, You know, we have that in spades already. Or we can keep it going. But that's not fair to the voters of Georgia because they're going to see what happened. I personally think they're corrupt as hell. But we don't need that because all we have to do, Clint, is find 11,000 plus votes. So we don't need that. I'm not looking to to shake up the whole world. We won Georgia easily. We won it by hundreds of thousands of votes. But if you go by basic, simple numbers, we won it easily, easily. So uh, we're not giving uh, Dominion a pass on the record. I no, right, exactly. But we just don't, you know, we don't need no. Dominion because we have so many other votes that we don't need to prove it any more than we already have. The real truth is I won by 400,000 votes at least. That's the real truth. But we don't need 400,000 votes. We need uh, less than 2,000 votes. 
Well, Mr. President, this is Mark. Let me uh, let me just. It sounds like we've got uh, two different sides agreeing that we can look at those those areas, and and I assume that we can do that within the next 24 uh, to 48 hours to go ahead and get that reconciled so that we can look at the two claims and making sure that we get the access to the Secretary of State's data to either validate or invalidate the claims that have been made. Is that correct? So that's that's not what I said. Um, I'm happy to you know sit down with or have our lawyers sit down with Curtin and 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 the lawyers on on that side and explain to him, hey, here's based on what we've looked at so far, here's how we know this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And we so what you're what you're saying, Ryan? Hold on, let me let me make sure. So what you're saying is is you really don't want to give access to the data. You just want to make another case on why the lawsuit is wrong. I don't think we I don't think we can give access to, to, to data that's protected by law. All right. That's where I'm going to wrap up the show for today. I encourage you to go listen to that entire 70 minute phone call. Your takeaway from that eight minutes could be very different from mine. Anyone, though, who's deciding, especially a jury uh, on Trump's fate, should listen to the whole phone call. Right. Instead of eight seconds. It's just cr- so crazy. That so many people have made up their mind based on eight seconds. Check out the whole phone call. It's all over YouTube. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.